1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. I've got a, uh, I've got a picture for you. You ready? This is on Time Magazine. The article, that's not it. There it is. I have it right here. See, like 3D. How many people get Time Magazine? Okay. Um, well, this is what it says this week. It says, does God want you to be rich? Yes, say some megachurches. Others call it heresy. The debate over the new gospel of wealth. There was the, about what, 15, 20 years ago, there was the uh, prosperity movement. The, uh, went by other names, uh, health and wealth, name and claim it, all those kind of things. The, the latest one, they're calling prosperity light. And it's uh, some, some folks that, that uh, kind of purport that this is uh, one of God's mission is to make you rich here in this world. Does God want you to be rich? Well, we're going to find out today. You guys ready? See, I figured that would be the title of the message is Get Rich Quick. I figured I'd keep your interest here, right? <laughs> Let me get you up to speed now with First Thessalonians chapter 4. As we come to verse 9, if you haven't been with us, uh, this letter... The book of Thessalonians was written to the Thessalonians. Go figure. It was uh, it started when Paul was on his second missionary journey. Uh, he stayed here in this town, Thessalonica, uh, which is near Greece there. It's he stayed there for about three weeks and he was driven out by persecution. They uh, the guys that followed him started a riot, which was no surprise in Paul's life. These were the guys who, when they, as they were running him out of town and persecuting the church, this baby, brand new church here in Thessalonica, these were the guys who said, these who have come, who have turned the world upside down, have come here, and they're trying to mess with our world, basically. So, fast forward now a few months later, Paul's in, uh, he's probably in Athens, and he can't take it anymore. He really wants to go back and visit these guys, but he knows it would be a, a danger for this church if he comes back. So he sends Timothy. He can't stand it anymore. He sends Timothy to go and bring back a report. Timothy comes back. Probably by now, Paul is over in Corinth. And Timothy has a really good report. He's like, Paul, it's awesome. They're, they're, yes, they're still suffering persecution, but they're holding up really well under it. They've got a great reputation all around that area. They're ministering to the people. Um, it's all basically good news from Timothy. Now, if you've been with us... You know that the Christians here in Thessalonica, they were doing a lot of things right. They were famous for their uh, work of faith, their labor of love, their uh, hope in the midst of persecution. Today we come to verse 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. We come to another example of how well these guys were doing. He says, Paul says to the Thessalonians, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God. To love one another. See, these guys were really good at loving the brethren. These guys were famous for it. Paul says, look, I can skip right over that. You guys don't even need for me to teach you about this thing, love. God himself, it says, is teaching you. Now, there's two words for love in, in verse 9. The first one you see is brotherly love. The Greek word there is Philadelphia. Sound familiar? We have a... a a city in our country called Philadelphia, and they call it the city of brotherly love. This is the kind of love, it's kindness. It's, well, think of your best friend. The, the kind of love you have for your best friend is phileo, kind of love, Philadelphia, brotherly love. This is the kind of love where you enjoy being around that person. You just 
things click. You, you pretty much would do anything for this person because you just love this person. You enjoy being around them. This kind of love is reciprocal, meaning you give and you get. It's a two-way street, right? But look at the next word, love, down at the end of verse 9. It says, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That word is a different word. It's agape. Most of you are familiar with that. This is God's kind of love. This is the self-sacrificing, unconditional love that God had for you and for me. Right? This is that, that ability to love the unlovable. And this is not necessarily, most of the time, it's not reciprocal. Most of the time, it's not a two-way street. It's you deciding you're going to love that person. See, agape love, this, this second kind of love, is so foreign to us that it's no surprise that God teaches us himself. There's not many of us that would be good at teaching it. But God himself wants to teach us this agape love. If he's a teacher, you could say this was first on his syllabus. Love one another. John 13, 35 says, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Those were Jesus' words. He says they're going to recognize you by your love for one another. It's the distinguishing mark among his disciples. Here's the first question for you, first application. Do you love the believers here? Do you guys love each other? And maybe more specifically, what kind of love do you have? For the brethren. No doubt there are definitely people here that you Philadelphia, that you phileo, that you like. I hope so. Right? There are definitely people here in this room with which you click. But I bet you there's others that if you were like picking out friends out of a catalog, you'd skip over them. Those are the ones, the one you're thinking of right now. How many people are thinking of me? Don't tell me. Those are the ones that we must practice agape love, the one-way love if need be. First John 3:16, interesting. John 3:16, what's that say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But first John 3:16 says, "By this we know love, because he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives, in other words, lay down our own desires for the brethren." And then two verses before that, 1 John 3, 14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother, agape, abides in death. So it's important to love our brothers. What if I told you guys? What if I told you that I had secretly signed you up for a class? Agape Love 101, Loving the Brethren. And... Someone had been assigned as the first week of the assignments to follow you around with a camera. What grade would you have received this week when it comes to loving the brethren? You guys want to improve your grade? <laughs> you should. God himself, God himself wants to teach you how to love the brethren. Maybe for your, action, uh, your application today. Again, we put a strong emphasis here at applying the word. Maybe for an application today, what you want to do is schedule some tutoring sessions with this teacher. It says God himself has taught you. See, and you've already got in your lap 
You've already got the only text you need. You're not going to have to buy another book. Maybe you want to schedule some time with just you and him, this tutor, about love. You and him and your text. And if you do, here's what's going to happen. This tutor of yours, the Holy Spirit, I believe he will provide real life opportunities to apply what you're learning. He'll actually give you opportunities to apply what you're learning. He will give you real live people to love. And many of them, at least at first glance, will be unlovable. That's the whole trick. Verse 9 says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Verse 10, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Verse 10, Notice that, first, uh, notice that second word, indeed. 1 John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We've been learning this in the marriage series over, over the cross the street on Thursdays. Love is not love unless it is indeed. It's only love indeed if it's love in deed. Love is an action. Think about the most unlovable person that you know. Again, careful. Don't think of me. You can. What, with that person in mind, what could you do to love that person in deed this week? What could you actually do to love that person in deed? Maybe offer to pray for them. Maybe make a meal for them. For the most unlovable person you know, that's agape love. Maybe invite them over. That's agape love. Now, if suddenly I get a lot of you guys inviting me over this week, I'll know I have some work to do. Now, in this verse, though, verse 10, we're also going to see how you can love a whole community. This is amazing. Look at verse 10. He says, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. In the previous verse, there was two words for love. Here's there's two words for all. Two alls. Look at the second one. Skip over. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. That word means in the whole, in, in, in its entirety, the whole thing. And interesting enough, the word Macedonia itself means extended land. Big spot, big area. So Paul says, you guys have loved the brethren in this whole extended area. Isn't that what we want to do? Isn't that pretty much our stated mission is to share the love of Jesus in not just this room, but this area, then throughout the county, throughout the world if we can? How do you do it? How do you go about loving a whole community? How can we impact all of Tavares, Eustis, Mount Dora, all of Lake County, if you will? How do you love on a whole community? I mean, it's big. I did some research, very important research. Found out the world's largest pizza ever. This was 122 feet and 8 inches in diameter. That's all. I don't know, is that about the size of this room? Probably way more than this. Way more than that. That's a big pizza. 
It was made at Norwood Hypermarket in uh, South Africa on December 8, 1990. The ingredients included 9,920 pounds of flour, 198 pounds of salt. That's got to be good for your diet. 3,968 pounds of cheese and 1,984 pounds of tomato puree. How in the world do you go about eating a pizza that big? Well, first thing, you find some teenagers. And then you start eating one bite at a time. Because verse 10, remember I said there were two alls? Let's look at the first all. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren. That all is the word pass, P-A-S, and it means each and every. See, the way you impact a whole community is by loving them one at a time. This week, we had a call come in. A man's father was at Waterman Hospital. He had a pretty serious surgery. His son had visited, and he asked if we could pray for his father. And one of you, I won't look at anybody because I don't want you to lose your reward. One of you, beloved saints, showed agape love by making a wonderful basket for this gentleman. The next, that, this, that same day, another couple in this family, in our church, visited this man. The next day, a few more people visited and prayed with this man. And he was really touched. The reports coming back are that he was really knew that he was loved on by complete strangers. That's agape love. And it's what God wants us to do. How do you love a whole extended area? Just like that. One at a time. One bite at a time, if you will. So this church here was known, it was famous for its brotherly love. Verse 9 again. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That word urge, it's parakaleo. It's the same word they use for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will send a helper. I will send this parakaleo, the Holy Spirit, to guide you. This helper, the Holy Spirit, his, one of his jobs is to teach. This word parakaleo means to, literally, it means to come alongside. Whenever I see the word, I think of, like I picture a cycling team. If you, if you were to come the back way from, from where I live, here, you run in, well, you hopefully don't run into a lot of cyclers, but you pass a lot of cyclers, and they're in, in packs, and you might see somebody in the back driving a car. Um, I picture uh, this person in the car driving by with a megaphone saying, keep it up, you guys can do it, you can do it. That is parakaleo. That is coming alongside, encouraging he says, we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. The word increase there, it means to abound, to overflow, means to be abundantly furnished with, to have in abundance, to be in affluence, to be preeminent, to excel. There's your answer. Does God want you to be rich? Yes. But in what context? What is the context we're talking about here? It's love. 
God wants you to be extremely rich in love. God wants you to be rich, to overflow, to have in abundance, to excel in this currency of love. In brotherly love, in agape love, in this area, no doubt, no one has, should have any question. God wants you to be rich. And he wants you to get rich quick. Verse 10, if you will, if you understand me correctly, is God's get-rich-quick plan for your life spiritually. Look at verse 10 again. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. More and more. It means, well, it means more and more, but it also means, if you were to look it up in the concordance, it means sooner. It means literally more willing, more ready, sooner. See, God wants us to excel to overflow in the area of love, to be rich in this area of love, he wants it to happen sooner than later. He wants us to be more willing, more ready. Well, what do you mean? Well, let me use the same example. I think if you were to talk to the people who got to minister to this man this week, I'm pretty convinced that they invested, I know they invested a little agape love, but I'm so convinced that it was such a wonderful thing for them that next time they're going to be more and more ready. They're going to be, want to, it's such an amazing joy to be used by God. They're going to be even more willing, more ready, more quick to serve. God wants you to get rich quick. He wants you to be wanting to more willing, more ready to serve. And when you get a taste of it, you will be quick to serve because you realize that it enriches you and your life. So you want to, spiritually, in the concurrency of love, you want to get rich quick. And what happens? You begin to look for investment opportunities. Right? Investing in the kingdom through this currency of love. You can call it the law of compounding interest of love. The more you invest, the more you want to. And before you know it, you are spiritually rich. Now, let's keep going, but let's get a running start. Go back to verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So he says, you guys are doing great, but you can do even better. You can be even richer toward God. You can be even richer in love. And here's how. Here's how to excel, verse 11, even more in your love. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life. Interesting. Is that a little bit unexpected? Here's how you can excel to to be great in love. Aspire to lead a quiet life. The old King James, it reads... That you may study to be quiet. What if there was a school that could teach people how to be quiet? Wouldn't you want to go down there and register some people for classes? And then when you went, how many people would you find there waiting to register your name? Study to be quiet. According to this verse, if you opened this school of quiet, 
Many would need it because the word here, it says that you should also aspire. It means to be ambitious, but it means to strive earnestly to make it one's goal. Interesting, right? This interesting like dichotomy, a picture. I'm striving. I'm straining to be quiet. But for some of us, it's real. It's a real strive. And it says aspire as if in a goal. How many of you, when you were a kid, some people wanted to be a fireman, an astronaut? I don't remember anybody saying, I want to be quiet. Your parents probably said that, but not so much you. Ask almost anyone what aspirations they have, and they're not going to say to live a quiet life. And yet Paul says to the Thessalonians, look, guys, you guys are doing great, but you can do even better. And here's how. Strive to be quiet. Lead a quiet life. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, look down at verse 12, and you'll see one reason. Verse 12 says that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. When it's talking about outside, it means outside the faith. It's talking about unbelievers. Paul's point is this, you guys. People are watching you. People are watching you to see if Jesus has actually done anything for you. We talked about this last week. Are you different? Are you different from the people around you that aren't quiet? And you know what I mean, right? I'm not talking about just speech. I'm talking about your demeanor. See, the person who leads a quiet life, one who is at peace, despite his circumstances, is going to be noticed. The person who's not ranting and raving or fuming or freaking in the midst of their circumstances, that person is a real oddity today. One who can stand up under the trials of life and not be freaked out. You're going to be odd if if you study to be quiet. And that's a good thing. You're going to be odd in a good way. You're going to stand out. We're going to come back to that, this this idea of walking properly toward the outside. But suffice it to say that the unbelievers around us are desperate to see someone live a quiet life. Let me say this. They're not desperate to see people holding up signs, yelling at them, giving them the impression that God hates them. See, this verse tells us that we are to aspire, to strive, to lead a quiet life. And in this day and age, that's a real witness. Now, does that mean that we are excused from sharing our faith? Oh, cool, I don't have to share the gospel anymore because I'm supposed to lead a quiet life. I don't think so. That doesn't fit with all of the rest of Paul's life and his words. Over and over again, as a matter of fact, we are commanded to share the good news, and it is good news. Right? It's good news. Did you remember that? Though my sin separates me from God, Jesus found a way to let me stand in the presence of a holy God. That is really good news. No, we are not excused from sharing our faith, but we are excused from sharing our faith obnoxiously. (laughs) You know what I mean? I considered another title for this message. Of course, I couldn't resist the get rich quick, but here's another possible title. Quiet Riot. Because he's saying, look, study to be quiet like I told you. Look, look at verse 11. Remember, this church was, per, was conceived in persecution, right? 
There was persecution all around. So there was, there was actually a riot. That's what broke these guys up, Paul in this church. He says, verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So did you get it? This church never picked a fight. Paul from the very beginning said, look guys, look, don't go out looking for trouble. Lead a quiet life. Share, share with your friends. Tell them what amazing things has happened to you. Be good citizens. Live right. All these guys did was tell their friends about the best thing that ever happened to them. And a riot came. They were quiet, but the truth that they were living by was not. Do you get it? See, the riot was not brought on by their own stupid behavior. The riot was brought on by the, the truth being borne out in their lives, being changed, and then sharing with the people that they knew and they loved. A quiet riot. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, We should have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Right? We, we would translate that as unbelievers. That when they speak against you as evildoers, in other words, when they say bad stuff about you, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, when they say bad things about Christians, don't let them be right. <laughs> Unless it's, well, they always talk about Jesus. Okay, I can handle that. But don't let them be right when they say bad things about Christians in your behavior. First Peter 2.20 extends that. It says, for what credit is it if when you're beaten for your own faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. You get it? But you're going to have trouble. People aren't going to like you. But what good is it if you're like, wow, I really suffered persecution today when you called somebody a name? You get it? The point is, if you live a godly, quiet, holy life and tell people the good news in a loving way, the riot will come to you. You don't have to worry about finding the riot. Now, here's how we can excel, overflow, and get rich in the currency of love. The first thing, did you notice it? It is strive to lead a quiet life. And number two, we find in verse 11. Strive to lead a quiet life and... To mind your own business. Did you know that was in the Bible? Mind your own business. The word mind means to be busy with. And of course the word own is idios. Sounds like idiot. But it's talking about myself. You guys are like, yeah, I know that. Idios, own, it means to pertain to one's self, one's own, belonging to one's self. Paul says... Basically, be busy with your own stuff. Be busy with your own business. See, some people in the church today want to be busy with other people's business. They want to fix other people's problems or flaws. Paul says, well, the Holy Spirit says, be busy with your own business. The idea, maybe I'll put it in a different way. Don't you have enough on your own plate? When you look at yourself, isn't there enough to fix? Isn't there enough in your own life that could be corrected to keep you busy quite for quite some time? I know there isn't mine, right? Are you really so perfect that you have time to criticize a brother? Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. You can read it with me if you have it. Matthew 7 says, this is Jesus speaking. 
He says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is a great teacher, isn't he? We've been talking about that. He's a great teacher. He's a funny teacher. He speaks in memorable word pictures. Think about this. This picture that Jesus is putting out there. Two guys standing there. One's got this huge fuller's beam sticking out literally. That's, it's, it's like a, a weaver's beam, actually, I think it is. It's like a two-by-four sticking out, right? Five feet long, eight feet long. And he's oblivious to it. And he's like, hey, can I help you with that? you got a little speck there. I mean, it would be a difficult operation, right? Every time this guy moves, the other guy's ducking. He says, you, how can you notice the speck in the other guy's eye when you've got a, a fuller's beam stuck in there? Verse 5, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Sometimes we're really oblivious, aren't we? Probably almost all the time. We're really oblivious to our own problems, our own issues. But we're really good at noticing them in others. Jesus says, do some surgery on yourself first. He says, then maybe you'll be good. It'll work for you to be able to help your brother. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say never to confront a brother. There are times occasionally when we are called to confront a brother about something serious that he or she has done. But we're always to do it in love. And we should always inspect our own self, our own hearts first, Jesus says. But in general, Paul says, as a general rule, if you're looking for a general rule to go by, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, tend to your own business. Be busy with your own stuff. There's plenty of work for you to do on your own, starting at home. Next, Paul says, strive to live a quiet life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to turn back. Strive to live a quiet life, tend to your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you. You guys ever been by a construction site? You know what I'm thinking? Right, ten guys there, and maybe one guy's working? To work with your own hands, as we commanded you. I was trying to find it. There's a commercial, I don't know if it was Doritos or what it was, but these guys that are looking down a window and they're seeing uh, four, four or five guys doing exactly that and not really doing any work. And they're like, man, these guys never get anything done. They're talking to themselves. And meanwhile, there's a lady over here typing madly. She's getting stuff done, right? Work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, does this mean that only manual labor is honorable? No, I don't think so. I think the primary message of this, of course, is that laziness is bad. Laziness is dishonoring to God. But you could also say, though, manual labor is honorable to God. If you are concerned that this means, hey, you need to make sure and have manual labor as part of your life, you could always sign up for the setup team. See, the setup team actually is very honorable. It's honorable not only because of its result that there's a, a place where we can come, but also because it is a good, strong, hard Manual labor. 
working with your hands. He says, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. We saw this last time. The same word for commanded, it means to pass down orders. Paul says, look, I got these commands from my king, your king, and I'm passing them down to you. He says, live a quiet life. Mind your own business and work with your own hands, just like we commanded you. Paul has given them a lot of info in three weeks, don't you think? He, all, all the, every time he's saying, hey, I already told you this, but. Hey, I already told you this, but. In three weeks, just looking at the chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in three weeks he's taught them the importance of staying sexually pure. He's taught the importance of living a quiet life, minding their own business, being a good worker, a hard worker, agape love, all these things. And here again is why. Why is it so important that we live right? Verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Let's talk about lacking nothing. If you don't follow these things, you will end up lacking. Because if, for instance, you don't mind your own business, you'll end up lacking in the stuff that you could have been working on in your own life, right? How can you keep your eyes on your own growth if you have your eyes fixed on someone else's speck? Next, what would you lack then if you talked all the time? If you didn't study to be quiet, what would you lack? You'd lack understanding. Because you can never get information when you're constantly giving it out. Well, then what would you lack if you're lazy? Money. You'd lack a job. You'd lack the ability to provide for your family. Paul says these are just really good practical things. One, for the reason that you lack nothing. But the most important thing we find at the beginning of verse 12. Let's back up now as we close. We're getting ready to close here. Verse 12, he says, Do these things that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. We talked about that, but I want to define one word for you that will help explain this a lot. The word properly there, it's a cool word. It means of elegant figure. It means shapely. It means graceful. It means bearing oneself becomingly in speech or behavior. It means to be in good standing. It means honorable, influential, wealthy, was in here, and respectable. One of the reasons that God wants you to live this way, the main reason, is that it's attractive. It is really attractive when people strive to live a quiet life when they mind their own business, and when they work hard. You guys want to be beautiful people? What are we talking about today? We're talking about rich and beautiful. We tend to think in Hollywood, oh, well, that's, that's where all the rich and beautiful people are. I, I know that already some of the most beautiful people I know are here. But we could be a whole room full of rich and beautiful people, if you hear me. God wants us, again, please understand, He wants us to be rich and attractive spiritually. Now, we can flip this on His head. Getting in other people's business is not attractive. Talking incessantly is not attractive. Laziness is not attractive. But God wants us to be rich spiritually. He wants us to be attractive on the inside. See, He wants unbelievers... Every unbeliever that you run into this week, he wants him to look at you and go, I want to be like that. He wants them to notice in you, like, there's a grace, there's a, a poise, there's, 
an ability to stand up under this pressure, a poise under pressure. There's a courage. There's a beauty. I can't exactly put my finger on it, but there's something in that person. I want that. He wants people to come up to you and say, again, I can't put a finger on it, but I see something in you. What is it about you that is so attractive? And that is your opportunity. You say, that's Jesus. That is Jesus in my life, and he has made me rich. He's made me rich spiritually, and he's made me attractive on the inside, and he can do the same for you. That's, that's witnessing right there. That's a quiet riot. God does want you guys to be rich.